Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Freelancer Head Start Podcast. Your path to freelancing and entrepreneurship is going to be unique and different from anybody else. There isn't a steadfast way to start as the journey to success is long and windy. In this episode, I wanted to share my experiences with starting on that journey of becoming a freelancer and entrepreneur. I wanted to talk about in the beginning of what was going on with me, as well as bringing you up to speed of what's happening now, and also maybe what my plans are for the future. So let's jump into it really quick. My name is Marion Owen, and this is the Freelancer Head Start Podcast. So in the beginning, in my school days, I feel like I always had that itch to try things out, to see what's new, to see kind of what is this thing. I remember my grandparents and especially my parents telling me stories about how I would be hiding behind the TV, trying to take something apart to see how does it work? How is this magical contraption? You can talk into it and you're having a phone conversation you know, with grandma. And all of a sudden, they'll catch me taking the, the telephone apart. Now, the downside, though, is I didn't know how to put it back together. So I think that itch about figuring things out and finding out what is this about kind of led me down that route of becoming a freelancer or entrepreneur. As I became older, obviously, I wanted things. I wanted toys. I wanted snacks. I wanted treats. And I started to figure out. Oh, you have to pay for things? I didn't know this. I thought mommy and daddy can just give me whatever I want and they'll 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 do it. They'll just all of a sudden magically give me a, a Game Boy. They'll all of a sudden magically give me a video game. So I started noticing that mom and dad, whenever they would have change in their pockets, they would never take it out. So part of my entrepreneur spirit was then starting to create locations where they would casually put change and then I would collect the change. So then at the end of the week, the end of the month, I would have literally piles of pennies, quarters, nickels, or dimes, and eventually get enough over the course of a couple months or a year to buy a big ticket item. Um, I would, not going to lie, I would rob my parents of coins and nickels if I heard their pockets jingling. And it becomes to the point where I started to Ask them, hey, could you mind just putting your change in this little change jar? And for them, it was very low uh, resistance because, oh, it, it, it's five cents to them. But to me, as a 10-year-old, five cents was, holy cow, that's a lot of candy that I can get at the school store. Or that's a lot of candy at the corner store. And by me just kind of seeing the opportunity to get something that somebody else didn't value as much, that got me spinning to say, well... What else can I do to get even more coins or even more change, even more whatever? So then I started to realize, well, grandma and grandpa also have change. And I then started to realize, well, people put pennies in their cup holders in their cars. And I'm starting to find and locate and realize money is almost laying around, just casually speaking. Um, and I can grab it. So that was my first round, I would say, with 
jumping into the entrepreneurial spirit because I was able to kind of see an opportunity, grab that low-hanging fruit, and kind of run with it. And granted, I didn't have an understanding of really how the world works and the fact that me as a kid, I can actually get paid to do uh, goods and services in exchange for, for money, you know? So uh, the, the the I guess the start of when I actually wanted to pursue a work for myself or have somebody pay me to do what I want to do was when in the summer months, I would go door to door and offer to rake leaves and pick up trash and mow your grass. But what I did was I was the middleman. I would go to the doors and say, hey, I can help you rake your leaves and mow your grass and yada yada for $20, for $50, for $100 if you want the entire yard done. Then I'd go to my friends and I would tell my friends, hey, I got a job. Um, We're going to help rake and mow this, this lawn for $40. Can you come help me? So then therefore I would keep 60 and they would get 40 And it was an easy split because I was the one who got the job. I was the one who actually went out and knocked on the doors, found this work, and actually got people to buy our service and our product. So for the first few years of high school, I was able to um, essentially have a decent living as a high school kid, buying video games, buying gas for my car. Granted, this was back in the day when gas was like, 97 cents a gallon so 20 bucks was holy cow that was like a month supply of gas but anyways um i think it started back in the high school days of when i started to slowly realizing i could make up my own destiny my own path into finding people who are willing to exchange um my services for for money and then I turned 17, and that was about the year that I could start to officially get a real job because I was getting pretty close to graduating, and I wanted to see what it felt like to get a real job. So I started working at like Office Max, uh, Toys R Us, um, any type of retail that was within driving distance of the house. I uh, went to college, went to college for a computer engineering degree, and we mostly worked on embedded systems and embedded systems is essentially the circuitry behind the physical device that's in your hand so for example what happens when you tap on a smartphone and get it to do whatever it wants to do you have to have some sort of electronic and electricity going behind the scenes to make your phone then talk to the software I was the guy who was learning how to build that physical circuitry that says, okay, Marion, tap the screen here. Then there's an electric charge that goes from the screen to the circuit board that then detects, triangulates, oh, his finger is here, and therefore runs some sort of logic to then tell the software to do its thing. So that's what I went to school for. And and then I got an internship in the nuclear power industry. Now, that may sound, oh my God, amazing and great, but we were more or less the helping to help regulate the nuclear power industry. You can kind of consider us as the non-government body, non-government version of what the NRC does. So the NRC is a nuclear regulatory committee from the government. And what they do is they go into the nuclear power plants and make sure that everything is up to par. 
So you have OSHA, which is just the general um, in the industry industrial safety standard um, uh, branch, and then you have the NRC, and then we were the twin of the NRC, where we went in and did almost the same thing that the government did, but took it up a notch. Now the reason why we were able to go in, and and I don't I don't mean me particularly, I mean the the guys who actually and gals who actually went into the power plants, did the assessments, and came back. Um, was because every power plant in the United States needed to hold uh, licenses, and part of that license to operate was insurance. So you had to have insurance that says my people working this power plant, as well as my equipment, is up to par and meets safety standards. So we were almost the, I guess, the insurance adjusters that went in to validate that, okay, yes, what they are saying is correct. And then we report back to the government. And then the government reports back to them to say, okay, we see that Impo has rated you on a scale of one to five, five being, uh, if I remember correctly, five being the worst and one being the best. I think I might have that switched up. But anyways, we rated you one to five. And if you get a particular score, your premiums for insurance can skyrocket from two million a year to 25 million a year, depending on what we found and how it was um, portrayed at your power plant. So I joined that organization as an intern from college. So clearly I was not going to be the guy going into these power plants and doing these assessments. But I had access to that knowledge. I had access to that brain power. And I had access to essentially almost any power plant in the United States to talk to people who actually worked at those power plants. And as I'm talking to these people, I'm realizing that there's not just one specific role or person that is that generic to say, I'm a nuclear nuclear employee. I'm a nuclear employee that talks about the chemistry for the reactive water. I'm the nuclear employee that talks about the physical pumps. I'm the guy who talks about getting the electricity from the generator out. So there's so many different niches and roles to where I started realizing, okay, you don't have to be a generalist. It's actually beneficial to become the specialist because you. we literally had specialists that went out to talk about that specific type of pump because that was the type of pump at that particular um, power plant. And I'm not going to lie, they were paid a lot of money to go and do those type of assessments. So that opened my eyes up into the world of special, specializations. So a buddy of mine we kind of had almost the same type of mindset as far as bettering ourselves. What are other people doing and how can we potentially use their success as kind of like uh, lessons learned into making our, ourselves successful. So we also had that entrepreneur spirit to where we saw opportunity in, in small and, and interesting ways. So by my sophomore year, my buddy and I created our first company together and that company essentially attempted to install public Wi-Fi access points in public places. So his family operated a gymnasium, you know, the tumbling location where you can do um, the, you know, the Olympic gymnastics. Um, essentially, uh, they had a gym up in North Georgia where they had seating where parents would sit and wait for an hour and a half to two hours, sometimes four hours of the day while their, their children are competing. So a lot of times they're just sitting and waiting because their kid is not on the floor yet. 
So we had an opportunity to say that, well, since you guys are op- – your family's operating and not, not technically owning the building, but they almost had the keys to the building, why don't we do a trial run to see if this is a valid idea to offer public Wi-Fi where we charge the location a certain fee per month and then everybody who's there gets free Wi-Fi, for example, for five uh, minutes at a time or – some other type of financial uh, incentive to purchase and pay for Wi-Fi. So we started out trying it out with a, if you're a member of the gym, you have free Wi-Fi a certain amount of hours per month, but you can pay for more if you'd like more. Granted, this was before the days of relatively fast access Wi-Fi and relatively fast uh, wireless access points. And also smartphones were starting to actually become where they are now. This was before the iPhone. So that's a that's a good, I guess, time frame of when we're looking at for these smartphones. Granted, it was not a bad idea. We did make some money, but it honestly, at the end of it all, we broke even. We found that because of the physical location of where the gymna- gymnastics location was, it was very difficult for both of us, or even one of us, to go up there if and when something went wrong. So that was another thing that we learned that something will go wrong to where we have to kind of drop everything and go and fix what the problem was. Now, because this technology of the access point um, that we were using kept failing frequently enough to where it was costing us more time and effort than we really wanted to do because we're also leading right up into graduation, um, we decided to basically dissolve the partnership and just kind of fold the idea and fold the company. But the times that it worked and the times that we were able to kind of get the ball rolling and momentum rolling, it was actually a lot of fun. We learned how to use that gymnasium as the almost the white paper to do a proof of concept to kind of get our, our stuff together to where we can then go to apartment complexes that were close by to our, our schools and then pitch them on the idea of offering free Wi-Fi to anybody sitting in the lobby, anybody sitting at the pool, or anybody in the parking lot. The challenges that we did have were surprising. That We didn't know things that we should have had at the time, but that didn't stop us from, from at least trying. Some things we didn't realize were most apartment complexes wanted you to have some sort of insurance that your device is not going to physically damage or cause harm to anything around you. Um, that also include the installers, AKA me and my partner, when we're going to go install this thing, how are we going to install this? Does the apartment complex provide the internet or do we call Comcast to say, Hey, we need you to drop in a business line at this brand new location. And Oh yeah, by the way, who's paying for all this uh, internet? So we, we had the challenges of the final cost of the physical device, getting internet over there, having insurance, basically running a physical business. And we learned so much about that. But at the end of it all, I think we were just starting to slowly focus on graduating and moving on to the next phase and the next thing that we wanted to do. About the same time when we started this venture to provide public access Wi-Fi, I started noticing that a lot of people at my job at Impo were starting to approach me as well as my uh, my buddy to do computer support. Hey, my daughter, she spilled something on this and the laptop's not turning on. 
Hey, I don't know what's going on, but I think I've got a virus. Hey, can you help us purchase a laptop or a computer because my kid is going into his first year of high school? So we kept getting these regular streams of computer support. So then we said, well, why don't we just make another business that is computer support related? Because that's honestly why we were working at Impo. We were their help desk. We were the first level help desk where you call in with any type of computer problems that you had and we would take care of it. And we started noticing that because we had access to that, we can have a small conversation uh, to the customers that were Impo employees to say, you know, hey, if you have any personal laptops or personal devices that you're having problems with, we can help you out with that. It's just a small fee, X, Y, Z. Um, that was a lot of fun because it helped us learn to almost cross promote and upsell certain features and functionalities. So for example, if I took on a big job that, for example, a, a virus took over this computer and I knew it was going to take me a couple of days to restore this computer and bring it back into hundred percent, maybe another job comes along at the same time. I can then give it to my buddy to ask him, can you take care of this? I'll give you 40% or 60% of the the original fee and I keep 40 because I was the one who kind of brought you the job, brought you the work. So I learned to start partnering up with people and not treating them as competitors because you never know what type of relationship we can have long term where it can both benefit each other. And at the same time, I became much more senior on the help desk and I was then able to demand specific type of tasks that were coming through the help desk. And then I started noticing that we are lacking web development help. So then I started brushing up on web development and learning how to do websites and learning how to install WordPress and learning how to do SharePoint, learning all these different things because I'm, I have my head on a swivel looking around to see where the problems potentially happening. And I'm hearing almost the same things over and over again with our internal application, our internal website. And then again, I was noticing that some people were doing things on the side who were Impo employees with their spouses, like somebody's wife may be starting up a Etsy shop. This is when Etsy first started out. Maybe somebody's husband was starting to do sell um, machined garage parts for Chevrolets to help restore their old Chevrolets or something like that. Um, they wanted help with websites. So I was the guy because WordPress was not nearly as good as it is now. This is back in the day when WordPress was, I don't even think WordPress was in existence. You had to build most of the stuff from scratch. So I already knew all that. And I was then able to turn that around to say, well, I can help you start the site or build the site. But unfortunately there's going to be a limit where I don't know, or I can't help you further than that. But the funny thing is, even though I was still not what I would consider an extreme expert, I was expert enough to where I can still help the customer, even though I was still learning at the same time. So then after about five to six years at Impo, I, at the whole, the entire time I was going to school, interning, going to school, interning back and forth almost every other semester towards my last year of Impo and last year of uh, school, Impo hired me as a full-time employee. So then I was able to actually hit the ground running and work on enterprise level solutions and problems. It forced me to then start to have those type of conversations 
of why do we need this? What is this helping you with? What's the cost in this? Is this part of your budget? And also slowly understand how to match a budget-minded project and budget-minded goal with a solution. It then became a, I was the expert in the room as well as the building. I was the one, I was the SharePoint guy. I was the one who was able to say, that's not going to work on SharePoint or yeah, I can see this working. Give me a minute. I'm going to do a quick proof of concept and let you know the cost. And from that types of conversations, I was able to translate that into some of the, the, the colleagues and projects that I've been working on moonlighting. So just because I left the help desk doesn't mean I stopped moonlighting to work on people's computers and laptops and, and websites. I just started to slowly evolve my discussions and slowly evolve how I approach customers. And from there, I'm able to then slowly evolve the type of customers that I was trying to approach and the type of customers that I wanted to work with. So the experience of working in a corporate environment to where I had some separation of concern where I did have a project manager that I worked with pretty closely and they took care of a lot of the questions about what is this project for? What's your budget? How long is this going to take? What's the time frame? So forth and so forth. I was able to learn quicker to figure out, okay, these are the questions I'm hearing over and over and over again. So therefore, I can ask those exact same type of questions to potential clients and customers that I've been moonlighting with. And then I slowly started to almost repeat what I have done and said and experienced within the corporate environment and use that for any type of personal engagements that I might have with friends and family. And then obviously any type of engagements that I had with people looking for help that maybe their budget was not nearly as a corporate budget, but still enough to where they needed to hire somebody. And then I started to venture out into networking. I specifically targeted events from meetup, events from conferences, and people who I thought we could do great business together, not necessarily on a customer-client relationship, more or less like a colleague-friend type of relationship. Because if I'm working with somebody else who's also a developer and we're, we're striking up a conversation, we're friendly with each other, I might have a job that I can't take on and give it to him and vice versa. Then I started to notice that, well, if I speak to a lot more people to maybe understand really what they're having problems with, I can then speak to them about how I can help them with their solutions. And then eventually over time, as I build that trust, it made it easier and easier for me to then push them closer to actually closing the deal and making that purchase. I learned very quickly in my career at Impo that talking and working with vendors, the most off-putting experience that I've, I've had were the ones that were trying to sell me and close me on that first call. And we weren't really on a call to sell me anything. I was on a call to figure out how does this product work. Now, because I was the most technical expert in the room or on the project at the time, I was also the one talking to the vendors about the, what are the features, how does this work, is this going to be able to work with me? And the, I just remember that having that abrasive moments of when I'm talking to the vendors, they're just trying to sell, 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 instead of kind of figuring out, is this something that Marion and his team needs? Let me f make something work for us. And then after the fact um, that, okay, yes, it's a good fit. Let's see what we can do as far as making the sale. 
So from that experience, I took it upon myself to rarely ever sell something right off the bat because I don't know who you are. I don't know what problems you have, and I don't know if we're going to work together. So I rarely took on clients and projects that didn't really mesh with my personality or their personality. Um, I didn't take projects or clients that were, I met you for the first time and all of a sudden, you know, I'm, you're paying me to do something. I rarely did that because I wanted to build a relationship long term instead of just having a quick one-off type of uh, exchange. Then I started to slowly build a Rolodex of clientele and professionals that I wanted to have in my circle of friends, in my circle of, of influence, because I felt that that web developer who I know is great at front-end development is going to be some guy who's really cool and chill, and I want to hang out with him, and we just talk shop. And eventually, it'll get to the point where, hey, I've got some work, do you mind taking it on, and vice versa. I also wanted to keep on updating myself with clients that I've already done work with because referral and word of mouth is one of the most easiest ways to actually get continuous work and keep that that uh, the work keep coming your way. And it's almost, you never know separation, what is it, the six degrees of separation. You never know who knows who and, and how that how far down it can go. So a lot of my clients and, and work that I've gotten has been because I worked on one person's laptop back at Impo seven years ago. And that led to a conversation with their cousin. And their cousin has a friend who's opening a clothing store and they needed help with their website. So you never know where it's going to go. So treat everybody with respect. Treat everybody as a potential client, but don't sell them anything right off the bat. Have a conversation with them, build that trust and have them understanding that you're there to help them. But if it gets to a point where now you're saying, well, I actually do this for a living and I'm a profession and I'm a professional at what you're asking me to do. Unfortunately, I need to charge you. Then that conversation should be a little bit easier to slip into what you're trying to do. Now, I started moonlighting and like I said, building my Rolodex of people and colleagues and friends to then be able to slowly build uh, my war chest. So I was fortunate enough to be working full time at Impo and able to stow away almost the 100% profits from working all these smaller contract jobs for honestly, it took me two to three years to actually build up enough of a war chest to then say, I'm comfortable at the size of this savings account for a just-in-case moment. And that just-in-case moment was enough for me to say, I am failing at freelancing. I have no job. I have no income for nine months. I need to basically bust through nine months of failing until I say, okay, I need to find another full-time job or I need to do something that because this isn't working anymore. So that war chest gave me the confidence to go out and try to get bigger clients to slow down and kind of enjoy myself as far as bringing on contracts, bringing on work and actually working with people. I didn't feel like I needed to sprint to the finish line and grab the lowest hanging fruit. I was able to then start to actually focus on the quality content, the quality customers, and the quality work. I wanted to make sure that my work is appreciated and not just, here's some money, do what I tell you to do type of um, client relationship. So where am I now? I'm actually freelancing, um, 
half the time now and I have another, uh, well, I would now consider it a, I guess, part-time, full-time job. I don't know how to label it, but essentially half my income is freelancing and the other half is uh, W-2 work. So I'm able to luckily have some time during the week where I focus on freelancing and the other half I'm focused on my W-2 work. Um, you don't have to necessarily freelance 100%. You don't necessarily have to be an entrepreneur uh, 100%. You can have a kind of a hybrid like I do. Granted, I'm still stepping towards the the level to where I can go back to being 100% freelancing and 100% entrepreneur. Um, I just took the W-2 job because the flexibility that it gave me was equivalent to me having a very large client. But luckily and fortunate, they allow me the time frames to do what I need to do for the other, other clients that I have. And the other good thing is I have a relatively steady um, income because I have it offset by my um, W-2 work. In total, I have four clients. One client that's the largest client that I have takes up uh, about half of my week. And the other three clients, they kind of you know fill in the gap of whenever they really need help or when I'm working on a project with them. Um, one client is in Georgia. One client is up in Maine. And then another client is Actually, another client is in South Georgia. So they're spread out enough to where they're pretty much remote. I meet with my Georgia client every once in a while if we need to and when we need to. And everybody else, I can kind of be on the phone or Skype or through email. Now, because I have so many different clients and, and people to work with, I need to make sure I kind of keep with a relatively standard schedule. So Thursday Thursday and Friday is when I focus on my most of the time my uh, remote clients. And then Monday, Tuesday, and, and most of Wednesday is when I focus on my W-2 work. So I split my week up usually that way, but I'll shift things around if needed. And then the weekends, I usually nine times out of 10, I'll relax. I won't do any type of work because I want that day for, for the family to play with the baby, to, you know, hang out with the wife, to do whatever I want and just relax and kind of reset for Monday morning. So what does the future look like? The future to me looks like I still have a war chest. I still have those nine months of income sitting there just in case something happens. So half of my income, like I said, is with the, the four clients and the other half is with the one W-2 client. So unfortunately, if I lose that large W-2 client, I'm now sitting in a situation where my income is cut in half. That to me is not really sitting too well. Um, most of the time, but I'm comfortable enough to where I'm not necessarily pursuing additional clients. Now, what that means is I still want to get to a point where I might have five clients that is you know, one-fifth of my income for each client. So I'm still kind of growing and start slowly starting to um, speak to clients on that caliber to where they can almost replace one of these quarter clients, unfortunately, or add on to where the quarter clients have less engagement and then I can have another client that is even more engagement or similar engagement, but the rate is higher. So the good thing about freelancing an entrepreneur, you can set and control your own rates. You set and control your own growth. You set and control how much you can demand and command. 
with the W-2 work, it's very hard for me to say, slap my hand on the desk of my, my, you know, my boss to say, hey, I demand 20% more. But it's a lot easier with the other four clients to say, uh, hey, hey, guys, um, next year I'm increasing my rates by 20% and here's why. So my goals for the next two to three years is where I can then start to diversify my income enough to where I don't really have to worry about one client leaving and then, oh, crap, now I'm down 50% of my income. I'd rather have some sort of maybe passive income, maybe have coursework where I create courses on freelancing entrepreneur. Maybe I create a product with SharePoint where you purchase the add-in for SharePoint online. Maybe I create a widget on WordPress where you can use a plugin. It's a lot of different things that I'm trying out and I'm testing I until I actually pull the trigger and go down that route and invest time and energy and, and obviously money to make that a, a real thing. But in the meantime, I'm enjoying my W-2 work. It's actually pretty fulfilling and it's pretty enjoyable. Um, and the workload is not necessarily that large or that strenuous to where I can't have other clientele. So that's a good thing. My other clients, I actually enjoy them. I adore them. I send them you know, updates on how the baby's doing. Um, and that's the type of relationship I kind of want to have with my clients. Not necessarily like we're 100% family, but in a sense to where we have time to where we kind of just catch up and how are things going with your business? How are things going with mine? How is the family? We're doing great. And then, you know, we, we get the projects and we get the work done. So those are my goals. My goals are to basically diversify my income and not have such a large percentage of it fall on a single point of failure. I'd rather have it spurred out enough to where in case one contract falls through or one job falls through, I'm not sitting and looking at my wife and saying, okay, what now? Well, thanks for listening to me talk about my history and how I became a freelancer and kind of the evolution of what I've been doing since the school days. So essentially you can find your path any way you, you basically deem and see fit. You do not have to be, oh, I see Marion started when he was nine and I, I'm, I completely missed the boat. I can't do it anymore. No, you could start to become an entrepreneur and, and a freelancer post-college. You could start today. You can start tomorrow. There is nothing telling you you have to have somebody's background and somebody his, somebody's history. The hardest part of becoming a freelancer or entrepreneur is actually getting the courage to start. Just look around you. There's somebody around you within an arm's reach who needs help and you are the expert. You're the one who can help them. You know, you can help create a moving company that helps move boxes. You can have a lawn service. You can have a web developer service. You can do so much with your skills, what you have right now inside of you. You, you honestly do. Just start. That's the hardest part. Well, if you have any questions or comments, please send them to questions at freelancerheadstart.com. That's questions at freelancerheadstart.com. My name is Marion Owen, and this is the Freelancer Head Start Podcast. Mm -hmm.